You are now listening to the February 9th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have the attributes of God, walking our talk, and grace upon grace. First, let's begin with the attributes of God. This program will examine how we can learn about who God is, His character, and His nature by discovering His attributes. everyone, and welcome to another edition of The Attributes of God. I am your host, Susan Holtgrew. So far, we have covered 18 attributes of God, and six of those attributes He shares with us. Today, we are going to study the jealousy of God. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines jealous as being intolerant of rivalry or unfaithfulness. According to Strong's Concordance, the Hebrew word for jealous or envious is kana, and it is used eight times referring to God's jealousy for the children of Israel, Jerusalem, and Zion. Let's look at Numbers chapter 25. Israel was tricked by the Midianites and began worshiping Baal of Peor, In verse 4, the Lord told Moses to take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. Phinehas saw a man of Israel with a Midianite woman, and with spear in hand, he pierced them through. Then in verses 11 through 13, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give him my covenant of peace, and it shall be for him and his descendants after him, a covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. From that time until the Babylonian captivity, both the northern and southern kingdoms had kings who led their people astray with the worshiping of idols and provoking God to anger and jealousy. God sent prophets to warn Judah and Israel of their idol-worshiping ways and finally allowed the Assyrians and the Babylonians to conquer them, enslave them, and scatter them. Our loving Creator God, who watches over us and cares for us, just like the children of Israel when they were in the wilderness, deserves our worship, honor, and gratitude. Today, we do not bow down and worship a statue, but there are many things that we can worship or put ahead of or in place of God. We can be obsessed with needing money and putting that obsession before trusting in God to take care of our needs. We can be so focused on entertainment, movies, sports, and favorite shows on TV that it keeps us from being in God's Word and spending time with Him. And what about our favorite celebrities and following those reality shows? I think you get the idea. 
In our sinful, rebellious nature, we offer our allegiance and adoration to celebrities and materialism and make God secondary. God is jealous. God does not share his glory with anyone or anything. God wants first place in our lives. He wants our loyalty over any other thing. Even good things such as family, friends, church groups, and country. As our Lord said in Exodus chapter 34 verse 14, For you shall not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. In closing, I challenge you to make a list of 10 things you spend the most time and money on and rank them in order of importance. Where is God on your list? It is my prayer that as you reflect on today's lesson on this attribute of God, that the Holy Spirit speaks and convicts you to put God first, above all else in your life. Give Him the glory, honor, worship, and praise, and also give Him your time, love, and devotion. First, before anything or anyone else. Until next time, God bless you. And goodbye. Above all powers, above all kings, above all nature and all created things. Of all wisdom and all the ways of man You were here before the world began Above all kingdoms, above all thrones Above all wonders the world has ever known Above all wealth and treasures of the earth, there's no way to measure what you're worth. Crucified and laid behind a stone, you live to die, rejected and Oh, King.
Coming up next is the podcast series, Walking Our Talk. We will be studying the book, Learning How to Trust Again, by Dr. Ed Delph and Alan and Polly Heller. Through true life stories and God's Word, you will learn how to regain your emotional, physical, and spiritual well-being, how to rebuild broken relationships, and you will learn five keys to regaining your trust. Now let's hear from Alan and Polly Heller and Dr. Ed Delph and begin our study on how we can learn how to trust God and others. Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan Heller. I'm Dustin Daniels. Last week, we heard a great conversation on the spiritual power of trust. And we talked about how to avoid those trust traps and then how and why we should draw our our real power from the Holy Spirit. And on today's podcast, we're going to learn three things as well. Number one, how endurance produces trust. Number two, how God releases his loving kindness after times of uncertainty. And number three, what God does practically in your life when you trust him. All this material that we're discussing today comes from a book titled, Learning How to Trust. Alan and Polly Heller, along with Dr. Ed Delph, are authors of this book. And the podcast is simply an in-depth conversation so that you can apply these principles to your own life. Let's get started with today's podcast of Walking Our Talk. 
So, Alan, as we talk about trust, let's talk a little bit more about the endurance that trust produces. Can you say more on that? Well, we have in uh, one of our chapters, we're talking about it preserves us in hard times, that that trust. And I think, you know, Job's life is the example that we give in here. I remember when we lost our son, Josh, to colorectal cancer, and somebody said to me, you've lost your house because it was during the crunch, the economic crunch in 2009. And so we had to short sale a house. I lost a third of my income. Polly's mom died that year. Uh, then Josh died. Our dog died. I mean, I felt like pig pen wow. in the Peanuts cartoon, cartoon, you know, with the cloud over his head of black. Everywhere I went, I went to do a copy in a copier shop to just get 10 pages done, and his copier broke, and he said, this is never broken. I'm going, don't, don't use the other one. I'll break that one, too. <laughs> I mean, I just started feeling like everywhere I went. So, I mean, I needed a lot of endurance, and really the only thing that helped me, oh, so I was saying, somebody said, oh, you're like Job. I'm going, no, 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 don't compare me to Job. I still have a house. I still got (laughs) another two kids. I still got all kinds of things that Job got taken away, so don't compare me to Job. But I do feel bad. I mean, I, I needed endurance and trusting in God and his word, and really the people around us praying and just doing common every i mean people showed up and they cleaned our house we weren't even going to this church and they provided meals for us for three months because we didn't even have enough energy at the end of the day doesn't we didn't even have the energy to want to cook or eat sure absolutely. and so i asked them please i have an allergy to lasagna so, you know, there was too much lasagna after the first week. And I said, <laughs> I said, could you please just give us soup and salad? That's all we... And they were very nice, and they did it. But the endurance, there, Scripture says, He will not give us any more than we can take. But all of us have been at the place where we feel like, God, I think you made a mistake. I think this is more than I can take. But I think the learning to trust in the hard times over time allows me then in the hardest time of my life to endure and get through it. I didn't feel it. I didn't think it. I mean, just to give you a picture, I mean, I would sit in my office and look out the window for three to four hours at a time thinking about absolutely, there was not a clear thought in my head. Wow. I have never been there before. And when you feed that thought into your, I've never been here before. This is really bad. You are really depressed. When I started reading Gary Kinnaman's book on depression to try and get out of my depression, I realized I was in trouble. Because there is no way (laughs) that you're going to read a book on depression. How am I going to get out of depression? Uh, If you're clinically depressed, man, you need help outside of yourself. But the the key here is trusting God allows you to have the endurance to deal with the hard times. It's a sacrifice, isn't it? Mm. Again, we come back to the whole sacrifice. You got to give up 
to go up so that God will show up and things won't blow up you know, <laughs> and we'll grow up. I don't know. Whatever you want to, whatever you want to do with that. But that's such a powerful idea. By perseverance, the snail reached the ark. And we need that perseverance to make sure that, you know, we can get through this time as God is, is healing us. And the whole idea of trust again, trust comes from knowing God. Mm-hmm. How can you know God? You know God by reading his word, doing those things that like that, but you also know God by how he delivers you out of a trial. You get to, there's a depth at which it's, it's a, a process where you'll know him so much better. And as you persevere to the end, um, that's where you really get in touch with God. Well, and I feel like it's not just his word, it's also his people who helped me, especially the ones who lost a child. They understood my pain. And many of them were not trying to give me answers. They would just show up and give me a hug and just say, you're going to be all right. Right now, it's bad, and it's going to get worse. (laughs) Thanks for that good information. But when they were saying it, I felt encouraged because I'm seeing somebody who's still preaching, who's still married to his wife, who, who even though he has all kinds of issues and problems in his life, made it through that time, that gave me the encouragement to trust God when I couldn't trust, when I didn't feel like I could trust. How important, Alan, is it for us not to tinker with the event or situation that we're in to actually embrace where God Mm. has us? I think when we're in pain, all we want to do, if you have a root canal. I never understood the illustration. I'd hear people say, oh, that's like having a root canal. (laughs) Then I had one. I went to the dentist. This guy has this shock thing, and he puts it on me, and I go, ah! He goes, well, that's not the one that needs it. That one feels it. I'm going, oh, great. That's the healthy one. Now you're going to do it again? I said, you know, are you a masochist or what? And so he had to test it, and then he says, oh, yeah, this is really bad. We need to drill down. And, you know, and I said, I'm resistant to Novocaine. You know, and so he gave me two or three things. And then he starts on me. He said, lift your hand if you can feel it. I'm going, you know, I'm raising my hand. The guy's not stopping. This shouldn't happen. I'm going, it's happening, you know. So now I understand. I mean, all I wanted to do was get out of the pain. And you know what this guy did? He gave me more pain Mm. to get out of the pain. Yeah. And I think sometimes that's what God does. He allows us to go to a depth of pain. Certainly, the scripture, woe is me, I am undone, has a whole different meaning to me now going through two years of clinical depression than before when I would help people. And maybe I I went through a day that I felt down or maybe a week or maybe even a month. But that just was not my nature. And so, you know, we need, it's important to remember the past of how God has delivered me from things and embrace the people that have been there before me because When you don't see it, somebody said, don't doubt in the darkness what he showed you in the light. And before this incident of my son's death, I knew God was good. He was faithful. He doesn't change. He only gives me good gifts. Well, this did not feel like a good gift. I wanted to get out of the pain. And I think I've said this once or twice on the podcast where I tried to get out of it sooner and my 
wonderful counselors said, how long's it been? Three months. <laughs> You're not even, you haven't even started yet. Yeah. And that was helpful for me to go, oh yeah, I can't just will it to be done. I had no will at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also, Alan, the result of that is that you, uh, and this is another point, one of the benefits of trusting God and those through the deep times, when you start to come out the other side, it releases, God releases his loving kindness towards you, mm. his mercy and his loving and we kindness. we felt it, that's too. A, that, that's yeah. a sacrifice. And all of a sudden, you begin to see, and God become, moves from nebulous to real and alive. <laughs> he moves from an a idea to an image to a person. And that's that loving kindness towards you. The mercy does that. It, you, it takes you to depths so you can that, go to new heights. That's really good, Ed, because a, a lot of times... Alan, this, that experience forced you to slow down and have uh, a much deeper relationship with Christ, who is a very real person. And, and Ed, a lot of times I think in the church, we are all shaking our heads and we're going amen and amen and all this stuff. But it's we, we want to believe in a concept and not a person. Absolutely. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. And that's the problem by the way yeah uh, because then the concept when things don't go right the concept doesn't work right it's an idol it's a false image appearing real that produces f-e-a-r <laughs> far false <laughs> image appearing real yeah and it just doesn't uh, it won't carry that it's the person that gets you through that the person of god that gets you through that you can try the counselor you can try the various other things and this that and the other but i'm telling you what if when you really Trusting, trust comes from knowing God. And it's what Alan went through and Paulie went through there, that they know God from that experience in a way and a depth that they could never get to if everything went perfect mm-hmm. in their mind. And you know what that also, here's another benefit of trusting God. It, it stops you from seeking after other idols in your lives. It's almost like that, uh, to who else do we go to? I mean, they mm-hmm. got to a point where they tried the you know the rest now they're going to try the best and who i mean jesus you're saying things we don't quite understand here and some of these things are tough but who else are we going to go to Mm -hmm. and so it stops you these types of things you really learn how to depend upon god and to hear god's voice that we've said it several times you know trust comes from knowing god faith comes from hearing god So in our chapter 10, we talk about don't adjust it, trust it, more of God's word on trust. And we have a quote from Bill Thrall. It says, pleasing God is actually a byproduct of trusting God. So when we trust God, we will please him. It's just the way it is. It's like a law of nature. I mean, you have the law of... uh, what is it, the flying, what's the flying law? When, when a plane can, it can fly because it is overcoming the law of physics that says this. Lift. It's yeah, lift. It, it, there's lift. And trust, if you trust God, you're going to please God because he thrives on obedience and trust in him. So trusting God produces a spirit-led, spirit-bred, and spirit life. That's a mouthful, Ed. Tell us what you meant by that. Well, I think when you're trusting God, you're in touch with God. <laughs> and what it does is it's, a, and you almost have to think the opposite. You know, if you aren't trusting God, mm. 
you you aren't going to be experiencing this spirit spirit led spirit bred spirit fed life mm-hmm. and as you trust in God then you start to experience more of that of the uh, not just the comfort of the Holy Spirit but the l- guiding and the leading of the Holy Spirit that starts to lead you through the valley of the shadow what is it leading to the through the shadows of the valley of death or the valley right. of the shadows of it's of not death, death. Mm-hmm. it's just a shadow mm-hmm. of death it just feels like it yeah it, again mm-hmm. it just feels like it but then that's that's just taps you into God's power i mean again what's going to get you through is God's word and his power and you're uh, um, allowing him to let him do his thing in, in your life. And so that's where you get more, you come out with more of the spirit on the other side of this thing. It, how can it not happen? Sacrifice releases spiritual power. So in Psalm 52, 8, it says, I am like an olive tree flourishing in the house of God. Why? It, that, it doesn't say that, but I say why. <laughs> I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. So when I trust in God's unfailing love, I will flourish. What a great picture. And then trusting God draws us near to him. And that you already said that, uh, Ed, that an event like that, when you make it through it, I I am so much closer to God. And one of the things I prayed was, God, help me not to forget how awful this felt, how this Mm -hmm. pain was deeper than any other pain I have ever felt in my 40-something years of knowing you, because I don't want to forget it. I remember saying, I've never heard of a great Christian leader who has ever not, who has not experienced a tremendous trial. And I remember saying to God, boy, I'm so thankful that I haven't had to go through that. And then I went through it. And I went, well, I guess I'm part of the fraternity now. I will abide in the tabernacle forever. I will trust in the covert of thy wings. Psalm 61.4 says, And with these words, David echoes Moses' narrative song sung to all the nation of Israel as they stood at the end of the wilderness wanderings, uh, ready to enter into the promised land. Moses told them, Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is my rock. He Uh, His works are perfect, and all his ways are just. In a desert land, he found in a barren, howling waste. He shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him in the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them on its pinions. The Lord alone led him. That's from Deuteronomy 32. Three through four. And what happened there is the next thing here you see in the book, trusting God gives you courage to declare his works. Mm -hmm. You just read his works there. That person trusted God. He just declared his works, and that's not bad. Everyone, we got to give God a little glory. To thine be the kingdom and the power and the glory. And trusting God helps you uh, to take courage. And I like this next one in the book, and I want to hit this for just a second. Trusting God overcomes the negative effects of uncertainty. That is so powerful because remember when you're in those trust, all these issues 
um, all this emotional courage. It, it's that staying on course. It's that the negative offenses. You're certain that God's going to do something. Uh, the Lord uh, works for him who waits for him. Mm. And that's a powerful product of you trusting God. I was speaking with a businessman the other day over breakfast, and he was telling me, you know, he worked for Fortune 500 companies. He always had a great wife, a great life. He just had all the benefits of this wonderful job and everything. And then God, he got fired from, from this wonderful job. And he just asked God, what's next? And he said, I really want to hear from you. And so his wife said, you should go away for three days. And so he goes away and nothing. He's not hearing a thing from God. And he's about ready to come back from his trip, and he's thinking, you know, my wife wants to make sure that something went on here. And finally, <laughs> God said to him, you will never be able to be certain again. And I'm thinking, wow, that's some really mm. good news. You're never going to feel certain again. You're never going to have the feeling that you had for 30-whatever years in this business world where you knew what was going to happen. You were in control, and you were able to see it happen. And he said, okay, Lord. And from then on, he chose a whole different path, uh, not in business. He chose to go into ministry. And he That'll had, do it. And he, has, <laughs> and he has embraced the fact <laughs> that he is not certain anymore of the things he used to be certain, and he's trusting God and seeing fruit like he's never seen before in people's lives that he ministers to, many other people that are trying to control their lives, and he's helping them hear God and walk with God in the uncertainty. Because when you've seen God deliver you out of the lion's den, when you didn't think it was going to happen, it builds your faith. It builds your trust. And so now I can go through a lot more. Like it, it has given me endurance and the ability. It's like a long-distance runner. If I were to go right now and try and run a marathon, I would probably have a heart attack because I haven't trained for it. I, uh, there, in my spiritual life, I can run marathons now because of the test that I went through. And I saw God meet that test and help me get through that test. So you're more certain. Aren't so you? now I'm actually more certain when I'm uncertain. Mm -hmm. I just go, and especially for you men out there who are trusting God for things and your wife is going, ah, you know, please don't do that. That's, you know, when you got the air hose choking and you don't have any air and you're uncertain and yet God has promised you something um, then when you get it you go oh God I can trust you when I can't see the far forest from the trees okay so let's bring a bow let's put a bow on this whole idea here we've gone through two chapters chapter 9 and chapter 10 and I just want to bring it together now for every one of these advantages we've talked about we want you to know there's a scripture for each one of them. It's right here in the book. You'll see that in chapter 9 and 10. We've kind of go through the list so you'll be familiar when you, when you read it and go through it. But let me pull this thing together for us. So we talked about trusting God is powerful because it's a sacrifice. When you don't, trusting in him, even when you don't know if you can trust in him, when you do that, it releases benefits towards you. And so I just want to read off a list of these benefits that come from a sacrifice. Sacrifice releases spiritual power, and the greater the sacrifice, the greater the power. 
So the benefits or this power that comes to you is number one, trusting God releases his power in your life. Number two, trusting God releases his blessing and goodness to you. Trusting God releases victory to your life by establishing you in conflicts. The next one, trusting God creates inner joy and brings happiness to your life. Trusting God produces endurance in your life and preserves you in hard times. How many would like that right now? <laughs> Trusting God releases his loving kindness towards you. Trusting God stops you from seeking other idols in your life. Trusting God delivers you from the wicked. Trusting brings God's help in times of sorrow. The next one, trusting God produces spirit-led, spirit-bred, and spirit-fed life. <laughs> trusting God draws you near to God. Trusting God gives you courage to declare his works. Trusting God helps you to take courage. Trusting God overcomes the negative effects of uncertainty. Trusting God keeps you in a safe place. That's There's 17 different points there, or close to it. And our, my, the final thing I like to say here is this is the Word of God. Trust it, trust it, trust it. Don't adjust it, trust it. Alan? I, I just say amen and amen. What more could I say? I think that puts a cherry on the Sunday. Thank you for listening to Walking Our Talk with Alan Heller. You can visit Dr. Ed Delph at nationstrategy.com. And for Alan and Polly Heller, head over to walkandtalk.org. On the website, you'll be able to order the Learning How to Trust book, along with the newly revised application guide. You can also schedule a personal coaching session, a one-on-one -on -one counseling session, and register for one of Alan's upcoming webinars. On behalf of Alan, Polly, and Ed, thanks for listening to Walking Our Talk. We'll meet again next week.
This is for those of you that would like to raise your children instilling God's values and His words into their lives. Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries can send you CDs of our children's program. The program includes Let's Read the Bible, Praise Time, Pray Time, and Story Time. If any of you are interested in the program, please contact the office or email us to receive the CD. I hope that this program can spread out through our English speaking children. Our office number is 602 866 8999. And email address is heartandsoul.orgmail.com. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is The Proud Acts. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. About the ambitions of the hearts of men. A lot of people have said a lot of different things about ambition in the past. Uh, Marcus Aurelius once said, that the actual value of a man is no greater than the worth of his ambitions. What is it that you are ambitious for and after? And what would those ambitions say about your worth? In the book of Isaiah chapter 10, where we are confronted with a king who has great ambitions, the king of Assyria, and he's a man that looks like he is winning in life. I mean, as he is going through and living life, it seems like success follows him everywhere that he goes. And yet what we're going to find is that he was completely wrong in his understanding of his successes in life. We're looking at a series, uh, a section in the text in chapter 10, where you remember that Assyria is actually the great powerful nation that Judah and King Ahaz turned to from help and salvation from Israel. Israel and Syria had teamed up against Judah because they refused to join them in an alliance against a powerful Assyrian nation. And so Judah said, well, we're going to team up with Assyria. How do you like that? Well, God said, don't do this. Now, why did he say that? Because he wanted to get the glory for bringing Assyria against Israel and rescuing them. And yet, because Judah disobeyed, God said that I'm going to bring judgment against you. Why? Because God wanted the glory. Well, at the end of Isaiah 9, what we find is, is that God is telling Judah about how he is going to judge Israel because they did not trust in God and because they oppressed the poor and they worshiped idols. And despite all of their positive vibes, right, that we talked about last week, God would judge Israel for all of this. Now, here's what's fascinating. Here, God is giving us a play-by-play of God's power, even over earth's most powerful, godless, earthless rulers. First point is this. Worldly ambitions will turn from success to distress. Now you remember again, Isaiah 9 ends with God telling Judah about his relentless anger that's coming against Israel. And they repeated that refrain three times. For all of this, his anger has not turned away And his hand is still stretched out in anger and wrath. Why? Why was God so angry? Don't miss this. God's relentless anger targeted man's ruthless ambition. And Isaiah chapter 9, speaking of Israel, 
in these first four verses. Take note in verses three to four how the pronouns shift. Now, that's right. We're talking about pronouns here, right? Pronouns tell us something about, I believe, what's going on in a shift of attention from Israel to Judah. Notice that they shift these pronouns from third person they, speaking of Israel, to the second person you, speaking of Judah. Asking Judah a critical question concerning their own infidelity. What will you do in verse 3? He says, what will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee from help and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Do you see it? He is angry three times against Israel. And now as Judah is thinking, get him God, he sweeps up Judah into this question. And what about you? Are you ready for the outstretched arm of God's anger? Have you considered your own life? You know, this reminds me a lot of Nathan in 2 Samuel 12. When he comes in and he confronts David about this man's sin before revealing to David that he's actually the man and he says to him, you are the man. David never considered that maybe everything that's being said about God's judgment could actually apply to him. And isn't that just the nature of our human hearts? We see with crystal clear perspective the speck in a friend's eyes from miles away and yet we miss the own log that's in our own eyes. Well, here we find the same thing happening with Judah. Judah, here, were those who were also guilty of ruthless ambition. See, Judah, in this story, he is not only the victim, this nation, but he is also the perpetrator according to God. He is not just an innocent bystander who has been taken advantage of. He is not just the weak and the lonely. Uh, We also find that the leaders of Judah are involved in the same sins. And I believe that each of us, as we read this this morning... We need to pause and evaluate whether or not our ambitions are godly or godless. Whether they are excessive, absent, or that Goldilocks mean of being just right, right? I mean, are we right in our ambitions or are we not? So let me just ask you this morning, how often have you even thought about your ambitions? Do you ever stop and evaluate Not only what you do and what you want to do, but why you want to do those things you're doing. Have you stopped to do that? To think about what is it that if I look at my actions, what would they say are the ambitions that are driving those decisions that I'm making? might be that you haven't even become aware of the way that you began with godly ambitions, and yet you've not paid attention and they've begun to creep towards godlessness and either access or absence of ambition, or maybe even in some senses, you've started to be ambitious for the wrong things in the wrong ways. Think about it this morning about how many ways that that can happen to us. Uh, In your job. Have any of you noticed how in your job, ambition can be a healthy thing that God has given you? God created work and He created it good. There is a special way in which we are like God as we work and as we are fruitful. God made us to glorify Him through the works of our hands. We are serving and worshiping God as we work. But how quickly 
Can that good thing that God created us to glorify Him through, can that work become something that is off or bent? We can bend it one way towards idleness and that we are lazy and we hate work and we don't work. Or if we bend it just a little bit the other way in our ambitions, we can actually treat work as an idol or a God that drives and consumes us. All because we're not paying attention to the ambitions that are driving us and why we are working. And we as a culture, we can even as a culture find lots of encouragement to be idolatrous in the way that we view work because who doesn't like a hard worker? Uh, Have you ever gone and applied for a job and they've said, what do you think about work? It's like, well, I'm a hard worker. It's like, ooh, one of those. Or what about your ambitions as someone who is single? I mean, it's good to have a godly ambition for the kind of person that you want to be your future spouse. The godly woman or godly man that God has for you because you are so jaded by this vision of a woman who is actually only existing in the new heavens and the new earth. It could be that our ambitions have been set too high. Or maybe you've set them too low. So that you find yourself in a relationship with someone that is not pushing you and pressing you towards loving Christ. Someone whose great interest in life is not to worship God and to help you worship Him better. And so your ambitions have been set too low. And did you know that the Bible speaks of this? Proverbs 18.22, so true. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And maybe you're a single guy here today and you like have all of a sudden said, that is what God's Word says and that is my goal. In fact, that is my all-consuming goal such that it distracts me from worshiping God and being faithful to Him in other areas. God put that in our hearts. And the reality is, is that that longing will never ultimately be satisfied this side of the new heavens and the new earth. See, that longing is a voice that cries out to us that we were made for something more. We were made for union with Christ, to be with Him forever. And nothing is going to satisfy that until we get Jesus. We were made for Christ and nothing less. We need the fully man-man, the fully God-man, to satisfy that longing for relationship that we have. And until that day, what we have been called to do is not to be ultimately fulfilled, but to be faithful in relationships. And how often do you see folks who never find that community that they are so ambitious to find, that fulfillment that they long for, other than Christ, if you want meaningful relationship, that's time and faithfulness. And so every time you move or you go somewhere else, you actually give up time and faithfulness that's necessary to build meaningful relationships. All of this is really speaking to our ambitions. And what about parents, your ambitions for your kids? Are you ambitious for your kids in good ways? For their grades? For the way that they are involved in athletics? Uh, Could it be that you're actually concerned more about how people look at you on behalf of your kids than you're concerned for their hearts? Where are your ambitions? Where do they lie? Well, catch this. God puts Judah on notice that their ambitions are beginning to look a lot like Israel, whom He's saving them from. But catch the antidote that God offers here for sin-sick hearts, increasingly ruled by ruthless ambition. Here's what it is. Here's the solution. It's a vision of the far-reaching sovereignty of the King of Heaven, even over the hearts of the most powerful kings of the earth. He says, your ambitions are broken, and here's what's going to fix them. A vision of the glory of God. If you see that, then everything's going to change. See, here, 
we find that he raises up God, this king of Assyria, as an instrument of his judgment against Israel for their self-absorbed ambition. And then he turns and judges this godless king for his own ruthless ambition. So we see the interplay of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility right here together. So we're going to look at this first in verses 5 to 6 and 15, where we see the sovereignty of God on display. And what we're going to see here is our second point, that the king of heaven's ambitions must shape our earthly ambitions. The king of heaven's ambitions or purposes must shape our earthly ambitions. Now, I'm sure that King Ahaz of Judah felt a certain sense of pride for taking control over the situation with Judah in their danger and creating this ambitious, cunning alliance with the leader of Assyria for his salvation. But what we find here is, is that Ahaz and Judah are really just junior varsity versions of the picture that God draws of the king of Assyria. Now don't miss this. With no possible rival to Assyria's domination in sight. They are in the middle of winning and killing it. And here in the middle of it, God is already forecasting the lament of his demise. I mean, this is like Babe Ruth calling center field, right? Uh, this is like that sad throw at the end of the game last week against the Saints, right? Nobody saw that coming. Like, that was a miracle. And I apologize for saying the Saints would win. I felt like it was judgment against me. But God actually recast the ambitious, powerful king of Assyria as a powerless tool, an axe that's wielded in the hand of God to do his work. Let me just look at verses 5 to 6 and then 15 and what God says. These are verses that really should, in many ways, challenge us and cause us to think afresh about God. Here's what he says Woe to Assyria! The rod of my anger, the staff in their hands, is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. And then verse 15, God gives this illustration of what they are like. He says, shall the axe, speaking of Assyria, boast over him who hews with it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it, as if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as a staff should lift him who is not wood. You see it, God here, putting on display his mighty sovereignty? Don't miss this. Judah and the nations stood in awe of the king of Assyria and this mighty powerful, seemingly invincible nation. But here what we find is God peels back the blinds and the curtains of what's actually going on behind the scenes, the spiritual reality that is actually directing the physical reality. And we see here that Assyria is nothing more than a tool. He's a a rod, an axe, or a saw. These instruments in the hands of God. Now, if you think about an axe, an axe is powerless left to itself. The power of an axe is completely dependent on the person swinging it. You know, Assyria, 
they may be a sharp axe, but God's the great lumberjack swinging his axe for the glory, his fame, and that it might be known throughout the ends of the earth. That is God saying, I take the glory for what is done. Being wielded in the hands of men in the same way that God says men are wielded in the hands of God. This is exactly what God is saying here clearly in his word. See, tragically, God is swinging at Israel, whom he calls the people of my wrath in Judah in in verse 6. Now just think about this. The people God called my people when he delivered them out of Egypt are here called the people of my wrath. And do you see what God's saying? He's telling Judah, you fear the earthly king who is merely an instrument of the heavenly king's judgment. God uses evil, godless men to bring about his purposes against a godless people. Now this is mind-boggling, but it's also all over the Bible. You'll remember in Genesis 50, 20, there's an episode where Joseph's brothers come groveling and begging forgiveness from him for, you know, trying to kill him and stuff. And it's in the middle of that, after God has unfolded his plan of rescuing Israel through them, that Joseph says this to them. He says, I'm going to forgive you because catch this, what you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be catch, should be kept alive. In other words, we had two concurrently purposes going on. The hearts of his brothers, which were not good, but also the will of God, which was very good for his people. We see this in Exodus. In Exodus 4.21, you'll remember that God said, I will harden the Pharaoh's heart. Okay, God's going to harden his heart. But then you get to Exodus 8.15 and you're like, oh, well, did Moses like get confused? Because there he says, the Pharaoh hardened his heart. Well, which one is it? Did did God do it or did the Pharaoh did it? But in Exodus 9.12, we see the Lord clearly hardened the heart of Pharaoh. So which is it, Moses? Did God harden Pharaoh's heart or did Pharaoh harden his own heart? Well, I would say the, the obvious and quick answer is yes. Both. See, Paul says God raised up Pharaoh as a vessel of wrath. So as we go deeper, we say, well, okay, so if both of them did harden, Pharaoh hardened his heart, God hardened his heart, then is there one that's primary, that's ultimate? And I think the Bible says yes, and this is how Paul communicates it when he speaks of the way that God raised up the Pharaoh as a vessel of wrath in Romans nine seventeen, saying this, it is for this very purpose that I raised you up, that my name might be proclaimed through all the earth. In other words, God was using Pharaoh. His sending Pharaoh being raised up to make his glory known precedes Pharaoh's actually hardening his own heart. Pharaoh decided to do it. God was sovereign over all of it. See, God is sovereign and man is responsible. But don't miss this. The Bible everywhere credits God's sovereign will. Is that mysterious primary will that not only foresees and responds to the future, but actually drives it. You know, otherwise King Solomon spoke of God and his sovereignty in another way in Proverbs 21.1. He says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And he turns it whichever way he will. 
So you might be thinking to yourself, well, that's great. That's for pharaohs and kings. But what about me? I'm not a king. I mean, I know that God created humanity for like dominion to like rule over the earth and that kind of thing. But I don't think of myself as a king. I mean, maybe you're a lady who says, well, I kind of think of myself as a princess, but not necessarily a king or a queen. So what does this have to do with us? Well, what's interesting is in Proverbs, he also says the heart of man in general plans his way, but it's the Lord that establishes his steps. And then Ephesians 1.11, we have to deal with that. God says there that he works everything. Everything's a big word. And here he says everything is worked to the conformity of his, and purpose of his will. Don't underestimate the ultimate sovereignty of God over all things, including the hearts of wicked men. See, God promises that his glory will fill this universe in ever-expanding ways, and he is committed and able to bring it about. Now, if you're thinking about that and you're going, that's kind of overwhelming, let me just say welcome to the conversation. Like God's sovereignty is something that is mind-boggling to creatures because he is the creator and altogether unlike us. This is a mysterious doctrine and truth and reality about God. It is clear, but it is overwhelming. And none of us can even pretend to understand how this always works. God moves in mysterious ways. But we're simply called, I believe here, to trust that God is sovereign even over evil. See, God isn't like a watchmaker who created this world and then sort of stepped back and then he's like, oh my goodness, what just happened? I did not see that coming. Or he's not like, well, I saw that coming because that's the way I made you, but I was never prepared to do anything about that. No, God is one who is actually engaged in his creation. He's also not like the pantheist God who says, I am in everything and Everything is me and, and that sort of thing where it's like, like everything is God and everything that happens is God. It's not that. He's still separate and distinct. I mean, it's a very complex reality that God is showing us about himself. Our creator God rules powerfully over his creation. But here's what this meant for Judah. See, Judah in context sought to arrest, God sought to arrest their ambitions and their pursuits from trusting in earthly kings to trust in God himself, the high king of heaven. He says, will you just like reorient yourself right now? You're being controlled by your fear of the, the earthly kings that are all around you. The things that you see with your eyes. And I want to remind you of myself, the heavenly king, who is in charge at all times. I don't ever take my hand off the wheel and ask somebody to take the hand, you know, the wheel. The knowledge of God's sovereignty, even over godless nations, Ought I believe, hear me please, come in close. It ought I believe to call all of us to recalibrate, to re-examine, to re-evaluate the way that we are shaping our earthly ambitions and to reshape and reorient them towards the ambitions of the high king of heaven. See why? Because God works all things after the purpose of his will. Here's What I think is really helpful here, catch this. God works everything to his will, including the ambitions of evil men. Then that means that God's sovereign over evil too. Let me just be really clear because this could get funky quick, okay? God does not sin and he does not do evil, but he is sovereign over it. See, God's not like the yin to Satan's yang. That's not what we're saying. And Job even says that Satan is a chained dog who is unable to move or act outside of God's permission. Do you remember that? 
He has to beg God for the opportunity to respond and to to harm Job and to, to take things away from him. And even then, God says, okay, but here's the fence that I'm going to allow you to work in. And you may go no further. So the Bible says that God has a different relationship to good and evil in the Bible. You're facing that and you're thinking, well, so you're telling me that I'm supposed to like say that that's God in my life? Well, I don't like that. Well, just hear me, please. God has a different relationship over good and evil. James 1.17 says this, Every good comes down to us from the Father of lights. There is no good in your life right now that didn't come directly from the hand of the Father. And yet it doesn't speak of evil or sin that way. In fact, the Scriptures are very clear that with God there is no darkness at all where He reveals His desires. In other words, if we see God's clear spoken word about the nature of, how, of who He is and how we are to live, we ought to be quick to start to reorient our ambitions to make sure they are in light of and are appropriate with God's Word, that they are submitting to Him. Why do we always conform our wills to God's? Well, it's easy. You never bet against the house, right? And if God is sovereign, He is in control, and you are always going to obey the Father whose will is always going to come about. God is sovereign. Every earthly ambition should begin there. The chief end of my salary. The chief end of my family. Of my relationships with my boss. Of the way that I view sexual relationships. The way that I view my own identity. Should begin with what has God said. And am I obeying this in such a way that it is to promote God's glory or my own? Like that should be the mean that decides or the principle that decides everything that I do. And second, I believe that this should humble our sense of ability to interpret success. Have you thought about this? I know it's hard to think about this in real time, but just imagine the king of Assyria looked like he was winning, but he was merely an instrument in God's hands. And so maybe this morning you're one of those that you feel like you are winning and you have no interest in the things of God. And you're thinking to yourself, I am winning. Why do I need God? I'm happy where I'm at. I know a lot of people aren't like that ever, but maybe that's you. And let me just draw you to attention of Assyria who thought that he was winning every day. And God says, the end is dark for you and you're not even ready for what's coming. If that's you this morning, you need to know that God, his sovereignty, it always wins his will and his purposes. And it could be that right now you're unaware of the fact that not only this present reality, but your eternal destiny could change in the blink of an eye. God will chop down some beanstalks in this life, carrying men and women that you see as spiritual giants in your lifetime. And God will use people who live to make much of themselves and not God to bring about His purposes, sometimes even harming His children. But in the end, they will be exposed and God will be glorified. God is going to be glorified in the end. Are you ready for that day? But there's a third thing. Not only do we need to re-examine how we value success and, and see success, but this ought, I think, to encourage you that because God is sovereign and is working everything in conformity to the purpose of His will, God is able to make good on His promise to work all things together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purposes. Do you see that? Romans 8.28, it only makes sense. Ephesians 1.11 only makes sense if God is able to do what He has said He is going to do. He cannot promise that every good in your life and every bad thing that has happened in your life will all together work together for the good of all that is you and your future if He's not in charge, if He is not sovereign. There's no way to bring that about. 
if he is not in control even over those things which are evil. And yet we find that God is able sovereignly to even work those things together for good. See, God's ways, they may be mysterious in their workings, but they're clear in their goals. God's glory and our good. Now this is really, I think, important for those of you who struggle with chronic pain, deadly disease, or an oppressive spouse, or a derogatory boss, or wicked leaders. Like as you have those folks in your lives, or you're facing those kinds of experiences that feel so hopeless, and you wonder, is there any meaning behind this? Is there any good that could come from this? Is this pointless or meaningless? Am I just wasting time here? Is there any hope for the future? And God says, because I am absolutely sovereign over all things, and I have shown you throughout the history of my activities with men, that I am sovereign in all times and all ways, that you can be assured, you can rest assured, that all things, even this thing that you hate, that discourages you, that causes you to cry out to me, that sometimes even causes you to ask the question of whether or not I care, you can trust that even those things are working together for the good of those who love God and have been called according to His purposes. Only because God is sovereign. If He is not sovereign, He cannot be good to us in all of the ways that He has promised. And here we find that God is absolutely sovereign to a degree that is mind-boggling. But here's one application that we should not take away from this. Here it is. It's that because God is sovereign, the king of Assyria is not responsible. Did you catch that? God is sovereign, and the king of Assyria is responsible for his actions. Both are moving in the same direction, the judgment of Israel. But both have different motives. Both have different ambitions. The king of Assyria and God's purposes worked in tandem or concurrently in Israel, but their motives were far different. Just notice third what happens in verses 7 to 14. We find the king of Assyria is responsible for his ruthless ambition. Just look at verses 7 to 14 where our sovereign God uses a godless man with godless self-centered ambitions. Here's what he says in verses 7 to 11. He exposes the heart of this king. Check it out. Verse 7. Of Isaiah chapter 10. He says this. But he, the king of Assyria, does not so intend. He's not about the glory of God. And his heart does not think so think. But it is in his heart to destroy. And to cut off nations. Not a few. For he says, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Calno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, his hand is outstretched, who carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria. Shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols, so I have done to Samaria and her images? Now just think about this. This king is not boasting in God, he's boasting in himself. He's ambitious for more glory for himself, not God's glory. And his commanders are more powerful than the kings they face. He says, look at my commanders. They are like kings over these kings, greater than them in their defeats. Which I guess, I mean, I'm not going to say it, but we all know that means I'm the king of kings, right? Not only that, we find that he asks these questions. And each of these questions looks towards a future ambitious claim of victory in light of the past victories that he's won. See, he will defeat Calno in the future just like he defeated Carchemish in the past. And he will likewise take Jerusalem, just like he took Samaria. 
who, by the way, both bear a reputation for worshiping idols like the nations rather than the mighty one of Israel. To God be the glory, great things he hath done. So loved he the world that he gave us his Son, who yielded his life an atonement for sin, and opened the life gate that all may go in. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son, and give him the glory, great things he hath done. Hath done. Great things he hath taught us, great things he hath done. And great our rejoicing through Jesus the Son. But purer and higher and greater will be our wonder, our transport when Jesus we see. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son, and give him the glory, great things he hath done, hath done. And give him the glory, great things he We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.